welcome to a podcast called Intrepid. I'm Stephanie Carvin, and I am facilitating what seems to be a distributed operations session of the Intrepid podcast team. I'm very lucky today to be joined virtually by Jess Davis, who, of course, is my former colleague and uh, is the CEO of Insight Threat Intelligence. Leah West, who's now my colleague at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs, and Michael Nesbitt from the University of Calgary Law School. So thank you guys for coming on because there seems to be some news. Um, <laughs> basically on Friday, we were all going about our business. And as so often in the national security community, something big drops on a Friday and everyone kind of has to drop what they're doing. And in this case, there has been an arrest of a director general of an intelligence unit at the RCMP for allegedly what appears to be trying to pass on information, intelligence to someone, something, some entity. And we don't, we're not entirely clear what the picture is yet, but reporting is basically suggesting that this individual may, may, and we, we don't have that information, have tried to pass on information uh, related to a criminal investigation to an individual who has subsequently been arrested and flipped as a part of reducing a sentence. That's one of the reports that we're hearing. It's not yet been confirmed by other media sources. And then there seems to have been uh, secondary cases sometime in 2018, possibly 2019, in a buildup to other cases. So to start us off, uh, Jess, perhaps you could talk us a a little bit about what this individual possibly had access to that is of concern, really, probably to most of the Canadian national security intelligence community as we speak. Yeah, so Mr. Ortiz had some of the broadest access to classified information within the RCMP. The function of his job throughout the course of his career at the RCMP has been really to facilitate the national security um, sort of threat intelligence piece and facilitate that with operational RCMP activities. So he would have had access to, practically speaking, RCMP operational information, RCMP intelligence, Canadian law enforcement and security intelligence, foreign allied intelligence, as well as operational information from a variety of Canadian law enforcement and security partners. So really, you can't underestimate what he had access to. Of course, that doesn't mean that that was what he was interested in exfiltrating, any or all of that. Um, We don't know what he wanted, what he ended up taking or what he was trying trying to take. But it gives you a sense of what he had access to and starts to inform a little bit about what kind of damage that could have caused. So, I mean, you know, Craig and I, in in, uh, previous seasons, we've spent a lot on this little issue called intelligence to evidence. You may have heard of it. Um, So speaking about that, uh, I think we, we just need to make clear that this is an intelligence unit within the RCMP. It, it would be a little bit different in, in how it's kind of walled off from CSIS, the kind of information it would have and the kind of information it would share with the rest of the police force. Yeah, exactly. And really what their function was is to take, in, in some aspects of his work, was to take um, the, the national security intelligence information, so information from other departments and agencies and from allied partners, inform senior RCMP management about what that information said, and then very, very carefully use that to make decisions about operational activities. But as you're implying and stating explicitly, really keeping to that intelligence to evidence, those boundaries around that. So it was a re- it's a really critical function, but as you can imagine, involved incredible access. Access that really 
isn't available through the rest of the RCMP in part because of that intelligence to evidence separation. Right. So like he, he was basically in a giant, on a giant mound. Um, that, that would be my professional way of, of <laughs> stating that. Sure. Uh, Leah, did you want to come in on this point? Yeah, I'd just add that um, part of the way that the intelligence community, at least CSIS, uh, operates with the RCMP is that they are sharing, they share information um, often at the very senior levels, um, but that information doesn't trickle down into operations by way of making sure that we don't taint evidence. Um, so this is someone who would have potentially been around the table to receive information from CSIS and hold that information um, and help make operational um, type decisions, but not actually push that information down to the operational level. So it, he was at the level where he would have had the whole picture. So the picture of information coming across from the security information and also what was going on below within the RCMP and would have been at the level that um, would have kind of been the valve of whether or not information was going to go from the security world into the RCMP kind of investigative world. So he really was sitting at a cross section of a vast amount of information. So I, I think the, the concern that, that I've heard raised on, on these points is not only did he have access to this information for the purpose of potentially selling it, but also could he have potentially helped influence the way information would have been perceived by the RCMP? They, could he have affected the way certain things were investigated or perhaps not investigated as a result of his position? In a lot of ways, he really would have acted as a gatekeeper on that information. So if there was information that he came across that could have influenced the direction of an operational investigation, um, he would have been in a position to either include or exclude that from um, management decision-making. So it could very easily have influenced the course of RCMP operations. Now, of course, we have no information to suggest that that's what he was doing, but it is that would have fallen within his remit. Okay, so that's good and happy. Um, so that's kind of setting the picture here for what we've seen in terms of, of what this person had access to and what they could potentially do. So let's now maybe shift to the law aspect of this because when we, you know, Craig and I have talked about the uh, Security of Information Act as a part of the podcast. One of the things he's talked about is how outdated this bill is, that it's not really used. And we have actually seen a lot made of this fact that this is not a very frequently used piece of legislation. Um, it, in, in, the, in the old version of it, because it was updated in 2001, it, it had only been used, say, around six to eight times. Since that time, uh, I think, Leah, you had told me that it had only been used once. So, Leah, can you maybe talk us a little bit through the background of the bill and what it actually does? Sure. So the Security of Information Act um, is really the bill on um, that sets out what um, special operations information is, um, sets different standards for um, secrecy of information, which government agencies are those whose members are permanently bound to secret secrecy, and then also specifies different offenses about um, the divulgement or the improper communication of different types of information that either is special operations information, information that is 
information of the type that the government is trying to protect or other things like access to buildings or to that type of information that people shouldn't otherwise have. And you are right that there are um, elements of this act that have um, been called into question. Craig Forsey's has, but those provisions that are um, probably the most outdated or the ones that are, are most complicated and precarious in terms of actually applying them um, are not at issue here. The problem with any prosecution with respect to the Security of Information Act is this thing that we've call, we call gray mail. And you and Craig have raised this issue before. But what that really means is that in order to prove an offense in court, you need to establish that the information at issue actually falls in the definition of special operations information, right? You need to end that, um, it, that the individual knew that um, and, you know, what the, that the intent was an improper purpose of that information. So that requires kind of putting that information out on the table. And that's the real issue here is if you have to disclose what the information is in public um, hearings, you're doing the very thing that you're trying to protect against with this bill. So if someone wants to defend themselves, they can play real hardball with the crown here by saying, you know, if you, if you want to prosecute me for this, we need to, we need to air all of this out publicly and, and that can get challenging. Right. So I guess uh, that's kind of the interesting point here. And, and that's come up before in these cases with intelligence that, you know, you have to kind of spill the beans of what you have, something that perhaps you don't want to spill the beans on in, in a court. And you would have to do that here. And that's interesting because, like I said, the, the earlier on, the charges that we were looking at here are really just two instances where this person is alleged to have tried to have passed on information. We, we don't even know yet if this person succeeded. Well, so, and, and that's a big deal here. I would say that based on the fact that he has been charged under section 14 there and that, that um, so that is, he did pass on special operations information. He communicated it is what he's being allegedly charged with. So that means that at one point he is alleged to have communicated special operations with someone. The fact that he's charged under 14 and not 17 says 17 is about communicating special operations information with a foreign government or terrorist organization. So the fact that he's charged with 14 and not 17 says that in 2015, he did communicate, but we can take from the information that it was likely not with someone in a foreign government. Right. So people have been using the term non-state actor. Yeah, I mean, the he could have shared the information with his mother or his dentist. It, we don't know who it is, um, but based on the fact that he wasn't charged with 17, we can infer that it wasn't a foreign government or a terrorist organization. Uh, Mike, did you want to make perhaps a comment? I just want to follow up on what Leah was saying, which is a really great point, but also we're at the beginning of the school term and we have possibly some young aspiring lawyers out there. So it might be worth as we go through these offenses just to look at some of the ways that we would approach looking at them at this stage and what they would tell us. So as one thing that we often say to our new law students fairly early on in criminal law or when you're looking at an offense like section 14, every word that you don't know exactly what it means and try to figure out how you define it. And so under section 14, this is the one he's charged with for the 
actions, the purported actions in 2015, it says every person permanently bound to secrecy who commits an offense intentionally or without authority, uh, communicates or confirms special operations activities. So the first thing you're doing is you're looking for a definition of what the heck is special operations activities, and that is defined in Section 8 of the Act. You're looking at what does permanently bound by secrecy mean, and that again is defined in the Act. And then this is the interesting one for Section 14, I think. You're looking at what do, what do you mean by communicates? And so I would encourage any young law student to the first place you want to go is the beginning, usually section one or two or four of any act which has interpretations. And in this case, communicate means to make available. So then you would say, okay, well, what does make available mean? And you would go usually to court cases. And in this case, we don't have any court cases on section 14. So then you'd say, well, what's a, what's a common understanding of to make available? And so here's where I think things are a little bit confusing about what happened in 2015. To make available to me, arguably, is I come to you, Stephanie, and say, I have a bunch of information. It's available to you for a million dollars. Now, I haven't disclosed the contents of that information, but I have just taken special operations information, which I've taken from my work, and I've said, it's avail I've made it available to you. So whether or not he actually disclosed in 2015 any information, I think might be uncertain at this time. But the fact that he made the offer suggests that he would be in violation of the act. That's right. I okay. think it would be sufficient to make the offer. So okay. we just don't know whether he disclosed anything or whether he right. on the dark web just saying, highest bidder can come buy this from me. Here's what I've got and, and no details or anything. Leah, is that your understanding as well? Yeah, I would say that that's true. Um, the one thing that we can, again, take away from the actual information um, is that the access communicates or confirms, and he's actually been charged with communicating. So, um, again, we can start to narrow down the type of action he may have taken, but, again, it's still really early based on the lack of facts. So... The other, but the other chart that we know of is section 22 of the act. And it's my understanding, this is where I got confused and you helped me work, walk me through this, um, is was section uh, 22 in, in support of section 16 and 17. Right. So here, section 22 lists a variety of, of kind of preparatory action that someone can take. So, um, you know, in layman's terms, and Michael may, may be able to walk us through this more technically, but... <laughs> downloading the information or storing it or having a device um, that you intended to use to communicate that information. It lists a, a different set of preparatory actions. And Section 22 is tied to four different offenses under the Act. Um, and the actual information links it back to both Section 16 of SOIA and Section 17. And Section 16 is about sharing information that government is um, taking efforts to protect with a foreign agency or a terrorist organization. And Section 17 is about sharing special operations information with a foreign government or a terrorist organization. So here, based on the information and based on the reading of the Act, we can infer that he was taking steps, he was taking preparatory action to share information with a foreign agency or a terrorist um, organization. But the fact that he wasn't specifically charged with 16 or 17, we can infer that he didn't actually successfully share that information. Um, at least he's not being charged 
with actually sharing information with a foreign agency. Um, the time frame here, again, in the information is telling. It's about its course of a year between September 2018 and September 2019. So the fact that, um, and there's actually pretty specific dates there, leads me to believe that that was the course of time in which the um, RCMP was investigating his actions. Right. Okay. So because of that, but uh, so that, but that does leave us with that gap between 2015 and 2018. We don't know what happened in those instances. That's the kind of concern that at least just the, the information that you talked about at, at the beginning of this, that's not yet in the charges. Yeah. I think the thing we can infer from the charges, and this is my own personal reading, so I may pr be proven completely wrong, is that the action in 2015 that he took is likely what seeded the information or um, seeded um, the investigation to narrow in on Ortiz. And then the actual investigation of his activities fell between September 2018 and 2019. And he was observed preparing to share information, whether that was information with a, a true foreign source or some sort of undercover operation, we can't tell. Um, but that's, that's my hypothesis based on the information. Mike, did, did you want to come in on that as well, either Section 22 or, or what we can read from that? Sure. So it, it's everything Leah says is bang on, at least my interpretation of things. So I would just maybe add two small things. One is that when we're talking about what information was shared and we're looking at, if, you, if we now look very specifically at the act, it looks like he sort of attempted to basically share the information based on the charges. That means that's what we're charging him with, either because that's the information we have or because that's what's easiest to charge him with. And right, because I guess this is one of the questions I have. Sorry, I, I'm interrupting, but could, could these charges be being used in order to find out if he had actually done other things? Could, could A, this be being used like, hey, we have these charges on you, we can you know, and then use that as a way to try and get him to confess to other things that he's done, or could there be more charges coming later? Yeah, there certainly could be. As I understand it, they executed a search warrant yesterday and we're going through all sorts of materials they might have. So they might have more information about what he actually did share at the time. And this goes back to, but this goes back to something Leah said near the beginning, which is that you may not want to charge them with actually sharing the information possible because uh, then you have to prove who he was sharing it with and that can be tricky in court you can have some concerns about whether you prove it beyond a reasonable doubt for example you may not want to name the other country or who they're being shared with because now you have some sort of lead into investigation into that individual so you may not want to out it so what do you do in these cases you just say something like well we know he was preparing to or attempting to share it so basically you end up with the same charge for the same action the difference being we're not charging him with actually having done it we're just preparing to but that doesn't mean he didn't do it it just means either we don't have the information to charge him with actually doing it, or we don't want to because it's easier to go the other route and we can get to the same result. Leah, Leah, do you want to come in on that too? Yeah, so there's two things. First, to Michael's point about preparing, you'd still need to prove his intent to share with a foreign entity. So you would need to identify whom he believed he was sharing with. Um, but in, in either case, um, but again, 
it's who he believed he was sharing with. They don't necessarily have to prove whom exactly he was sharing with. It would be, it would be a different standard I'd imagine. Um, but the other thing to your point, Stephanie is, um, a good defense lawyer is not going to get their client to confess to a crime they're not charged with. Right. So, um, you know, the idea of putting, you know, certain charges on the table, hoping he'll confess to bigger ones is, is not something that, uh, a lawyer would ever allow to happen. Um, this is why I'm not a lawyer. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's very rarely that, you know, someone charged with, you know, murdering one person and then commits to, or commit, confesses to murdering to eight others. Like that's, that's movie stuff. Um, but that was my education, a movie, yeah. <laughs> movie law school. So um, but, but can I, cause I was going to say the other thing here is, is this is, and this is pure speculation, but there's been reporting from Mercedes Stevenson and, we, and, you know, like according to her, she always has good sources. So, but you know, we, we don't know this definitively from, from the, uh, from our, the crown prosecution there, this seems to possibly have originated from an American investigation where someone was convicted and then in a plea to reduce the sentence, said, oh, by the way, there's this guy who tried to sell me information. How is that going to hold up a Canadian court? I mean, if this is a, someone who is, had potentially the incentive to implicate someone in a crime to reduce a sentence, does that have an effect? I mean, this is way down the road, but it is something that kind of stuck out for me. Realistically, um, it's evidence that would be tested in court. The prejudicial effect would be weighed against the probative value. The trier effect would end up deciding what weight to give it. Um, I mean, it's not going to be necessarily inadmissible, but the weight will be up to the trier of fact, whether that's a jury or a judge. So, um, you know, I don't really see it having a huge, uh, impact, but if I'm defense counsel, obviously I'm going to go at the guy's motivation, but the fact that this was entirely unrelated to, as reported by Mercedes, um, that this was entirely unrelated to the charges he was charged with would, I, I would think go to its credibility. So is there, is there any other points on either of these kind of section 14 or 22 charges that we should make? One other thing, and maybe this is just a pedantic legal exercise for law students out there that might find it interesting, but I, I think we can learn a little something from the second section 22 charges. And that is, if you look at the section 22, it then says you are essentially collecting information or looking at information, whatever the case might be, to then give it to a foreign entity. And so we get back to that same thing I discussed at the top of this episode, which is, well, then what's a foreign entity? And so, again, if you go into the act, it defines a foreign entity as a foreign power. And then it says a foreign power is a government of a foreign state. And then it has a couple other political faction, you know, they make sure we define it. So technically it's not a government, but they're the ruling junta or something. We can still include them in that. But what this all means is that the charges were preparing to for, to share this with a foreign entity. Foreign entity is foreign power. Foreign power is foreign state, meaning there is at least a state element to this. Uh, not that he necessarily disclosed anything to a foreign state, but those charges stem from an attempt to or or planning to share with the foreign state. So, so that's some of the offenses, but it's not just that. There's also criminal code offenses. I think actually having to do with a computer and things like that. So, do you want to just spell that out quickly? Yeah. So he was charged under um, Section uh, 34. Um, 
2.1 of the criminal code, um, which I mean really is uh, unauthorized use of a computer. Um, it can mean a whole lot of things. It's a very vaguely defined. He was charged um, specifically under 342.1 sub C if you want to get super nerdy and go read your copy of the criminal code. Who doesn't? Um, I mean, really. Um, so in, in this case, it was basically, you see this charge actually most frequently and uh, in my past life, I had to go and look at every time this charge has ever been used. It's often used against cops who inappropriately access like CIPIC and computer databases. CIPIC being the uh, criminal intelligence uh, database. Yeah. So people go and look up what their girlfriend's new boyfriend is, um, you know, ever been charged with that kind of stuff. The bad it's, life choice. <laughs> right. These are the types of things that typically cause someone to be charged under this offense, um, especially law enforcement members, but it could also be um, doing anything with a computer to cover your tracks. That's another thing that um, this offense could be used for. So it could be either what he was doing to access information or how he was trying to obfuscate the fact that he was inappropriately accessing information. That's the type of thing we would see here. The other offense he's charged with is under 122 of the criminal code, which uh, was recently made famous in the Vice Admiral Mark Norman case. That's breach of trust. Um, so that's an offense that is only uh, available if you're a public office holder. It really needs to be kind of a, a grave and beyond um, you know, public expectations of a public office holder that breaches trust. Obviously, if he was sharing or disclosing secret information, um, he would satisfy that, um, criteria for that offense. And that offense, um, actually both of these offenses, the criminal code offenses span from 2015 to 28, uh, So they're basically saying through the whole time period, um, under which, uh, we suspect that he was inappropriately accessing or offering up information, um, these two offenses apply. Right. Mike, do you have um, any views on that? Are you inappropriately using computers? <laughs> I certainly hope not. Luckily, we don't have anything on our computers uh, at universities that would be of much value to anyone in some cases in, in the law school anyways. Exams, no, Mike. Exams. <laughs> exams. <laughs> no, I guess maybe one thing just to clarify a point, because it's because the breach of trust in particular has been in the news recently with General Mark Norman with, this was the uh, Duffy trial as well. So there have been a couple of these recently that have been unsuccessful. And so to the extent people are worried about this but, or our ability to prosecute it, I would make a distinction between this particular case and those cases. And so there's a number of distinctions to be made and those sort of fell apart for a variety of reasons in the Norman case on essentially at disclosure stage of things. Uh, but two things we really struggle with on breach of trust with public officials when those officials are senators are the fourth and fifth prongs of the legal test for that. And the fourth prong is the conduct of the accused represented a serious and marked departure from the standards expected of an individual in their position. And that's where it appeared that Mr. Norman and his lawyer we're going was everyone is leaking. This isn't a serious and marked departure. And the fifth prong is the accused acted with the intention to use his or her public office for the purpose other than the public good. 
And again, it looked like his defense would have been, I was doing just the opposite. I saved you billions of dollars. Uh, this was actually in the public good, which was my intention for leaking it. So that makes it hard for us. Those, those problems in particular make it very hard for us to prosecute politicians, senators, that sort of thing in a lot of these cases. This case we're dealing with here is completely different. Those problems will not be difficult to prove. If he's trying right, to... Right, because someone downloading terabytes of information onto a hard drive that should not be on that hard drive, that's a pretty clear no-no. That's right. And and then trying to sell it to a foreign state. And I should have added earlier that the definition of the foreign entity, which is foreign power, it, it could also be a terrorist organization. So just yes. to make things a little bit better, that's not necessarily, <laughs> I suppose, a foreign state, could be a terrorist organization. So the other case that we've had of this recently, of course, is the Jeffrey Delisle case. I mean, there's the Huang case that's still ongoing. And there's some problems there for uh, a number of reasons related, but, but that's different. This is someone who was an engineer who basically was trying to pass on information to the Chinese government, got caught, and now is, is in, in court. This seems to be a little bit different. Delisle was someone who, he was what you call a walk-in. He walked into the Russian embassy and was able to you know, convinced them that he was legit. And then they uh, had a relationship. He passed on information. He appears to be motivated by a not great time in his life, including a divorce, being diabetic, not being able to deploy, these kinds of things. Um, we don't yet know what's the, what motivated this individual. But I think the Delisle case is the first thing a lot of people perhaps thought of when it came to this uh, news that we had on Friday. So do we want to walk through that at all, just from a legal perspective, what he was charged with, as opposed to what uh, Otis is charged with? So in the Jeffrey Delisle case, he was charged, again, he was charged with a uh, breach of trust under the criminal code, section 122, which we just talked about. He was also charged under section 16 of the Security of Information Act, which I mentioned earlier. And in that case, he was charged with disclosing information that the government was trying to, or taking efforts to protect um, to a foreign entity, in that case, Russia. And Jeffrey Lyle, we haven't mentioned it, he was a military, um, he was a naval intelligence officer working in yes. Halifax. Um, and so this is different um, because this is actually someone who disclosed special operations information. So that next level up of information, um, I've He's called it- Far more closer to the sharp end of the stick. Exactly, right? Like Jeffrey Delisle, um, obviously given his, you know, where he worked had a lot of access to information, but the guy was a captain. Um, this was a DG in RCMP uh, National Security Intelligence. Uh, in terms of scope, very different and um, definitely kind of of that special operations information, which, as Michael said, is defined under the act, includes human sources, military operations, tech, like um, sensitive techniques. Um, this is kind of, and I've used the term before and people have tried to nitpick me with it, but I will stick with it, is crown jewel information when you are an intelligence service. This is, there is no definition of information more sensitive in law than special operations information. Um, and this is the first time we've actually ever seen anyone charged under the current act with disclosing special operations information. And so that's where it's different from Jeffrey Delisle. There's been talk in the past that, you know, the type of stuff Jeffrey Delisle may have disclosed could have fallen into the category of special operations information, 
but he wasn't charged with that. Um, this case, he's charged with, um, you know, handing over the crown jewels or offering the crown jewels to someone. So this is potentially, when you put it that way, and I think, you know, Jess, we're going to bring you back in in just a second to talk about like damage and damage control and stuff like this. Um, it, it seems to be a far more serious situation than potentially than the Zyle case, although we don't yet see that necessarily in the charges. The, yeah. The thing is, we don't know that he actually successfully shared anything with anyone exactly. in this case. Yeah. But, but if he did, who boy did he have access to, as you say, the crown jewels? Exactly. So maybe this is a good time to bring you uh, back in, Jess. I mean, when I, when I started in national security back in 2012, I did all my clearances in 2011. It was barely a year really after the whole Delisle thing. And I recall people talking about the way that security procedures had been ramped up since Delisle, that there was still, you know, people still said that they felt an impact from his actions and things like this. And so, and when I've heard from uh, some of uh, our former colleagues, uh, they've, they, you know, been texting and the concerns that they have expressed is that, you know, this is the kind of thing that leaves an impact for years, uh, just in, in both in terms of morale, but in terms of, you know, the way the national security intelligence community operates. If this guy's given out some kind of sources and methods uh, information to either criminal actors or states or anything like this, and as well as Five Eyes. So I'd be interested in your view as to, you know, the, the potential fallout from this and what we're already seeing. Yeah, so there's a lot to unpack in terms of the damage control. I think there's one thing that I didn't mention earlier in the podcast that I think is worthwhile mentioning now. And that's that, you know, Mr. Ortis had access to that in, in the information and intelligence that I outlined earlier. But he also had other information that's uh, probably of interest to the private sector. because. Um, the RCMP and other Canadian law enforcement and security agencies have been working on enhancing public-private partnerships relating to things like cybersecurity, critical infrastructure, and the sharing of financial intelligence. Ortis very likely had access to vulnerability information uh, about Canadian companies, as well as financial intelligence from Canada's financial sector. So the damage control is ongoing both within, obviously, Canadian uh, law enforcement security services, but also in the private sector. Interesting. Yeah. So what, in terms of damage control, what, you know, what, what we're really looking at is figure out what he accessed, how he accessed it, because, you know, there's a lot of talk about um, some of the, like, hard drives and things, but we don't actually know what tools or techniques he used to access it. And anybody who's worked in um, sort of a classified environment knows that it's not actually that easy to just walk in and plug in a USB, like external hard drive into um, a classified system that will raise a whole bunch of alarms. <laughs> and if it's, and should be not impossible, if it's not, that's a whole other issue. And um, so how he accessed it and, and sort of what technical solutions need to be put in place to make sure that that can't happen again, why he accessed it, um, who might have been interested in acquiring it? The other question, too, is did he undergo any kind of um, security up upgrade or um, a usual five-year review during the time period that this was happening? Um, that's a huge question for me because that's exactly what those kinds of things are meant to This is exactly what those kinds of things are meant to catch. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the other thing. For those who don't know, every five years, if you have a highly classified job, you go through... Uh, a process. It's a lengthy process. It's it's unpleasant in some cases. Uh, in order to get uh, your security clearances renewed, so as you say, did this person go through this process during that time? And you have to believe that between 2015 and 2019, 
possible. There was a good chance that he did, but we, we don't know yet that for certain. Yeah. And there's also a possibility that he should have undergone um, a review of his clearance if he was promoted at any point in time during that period as well. So there's a lot of opportunities for the RCMP to have conducted additional due diligence checks, I guess, um, in this time period. And those, those checks are quite intrusive. Anybody who knows it's, you know, you have to disclose a lot of information, much of friends, your social activities, <laughs> your drinking habits, your money. So there's a lot of questions for me around that. Um, but then as you alluded to earlier, Steph, I think there's also damage control that needs to be done within the Canadian security and intelligence community. The community operates on trust. Um, when it has calls, to. It has to. You yeah. have to believe that the people you need to work with in order to solve problems are just as committed to, you know, preserving classification, preserving information as much as possible while yeah. using it in an effective way. Or else it, it just doesn't work. Yeah, you can't operate in a situation where you're constantly second-guessing people's motivations for asking for information. Of course, there's... Um, procedures in place to make sure that only people with the right classifications get or clearances get the the required information but it's really fundamentally it's about trust and that trust has been breached so deeply and it's not just about any person potentially conducting this kind of activity it's also about who this individual was he was extremely well known in the Canadian security and intelligence world he was by all of the accounts that I've heard very well respected um so this has a lot more impact than somebody who's a bit more peripheral or is, has a known grievance within the intelligence community. Or, you know, he's not, he wasn't a likely suspect. And he's I think not that, an Edward Snowden. <laughs> well, I think that's true. Or like, you know, I've seen comparison to, you know, well, it's interesting because I've, I've had people ask me, like, is this like the Hansen case, the United States, which is a very famous case of someone who was selling, I believe, information to the Russians or Aldrich Ames who passed on, very serious operational information to the Russians and had quite a number of individuals killed as, as a result. So, I mean, I, I can't think that we're really in the stage of pointing to people who've been killed abroad or anything like that, but that to me seems like, and Leah and, and Jess and your comments and stuff like that, I mean, like just the fact that this guy had access to that very, you know, the, the, the lifeblood of, of an intelligence service, which is, sources and methods and, and things like this is that's what I think is so concerning for everyone. And that someone who had that responsibility appears to have uh, betrayed the trust of, of not just his coworkers, but really of Canada. Yeah. And, and I'll just add, um, you know, having worked in, alongside senior officials in the past as either a legal advisor or a briefer, like there, when you're in those positions, you develop like realistically, um, the senior management of the RCMP would have been relying on this individual. They would have been trusting him. He was a civilian who made it up to director general in national security of the RCMP. That is an incredibly unusual thing for a civilian to make it up that kind of uh, way in such a, a um, insular type of organization. Like the level of trust that uh, senior officials would have had in him um, would have been would have run deep, and those officials are now having to grapple with that. And I I, I think that'll really um, whether or not he shared anything, that in itself will really shake the core of the institution. Exactly, and I think that's the key. That, that exactly, that I think is the point. It's not just the damage that's been done, but it's it's the the hurt to the trust. 
so you know let's we there's a lot that we don't know right now um there's there's a lot of uh concerns questions so i think i'm just gonna just try and end this episode this emergency episode for which i thank you all for generously donating your sunday time um you know what are your kind of final thoughts as I'm sure we're going to be talking about this again. This is just the beginning. It's very far from the end. So what is it that you're thinking or that you're going to be looking for? Uh, Mike, perhaps we can start with you. Sure. So from the legal side, I suppose I will be looking really basically at how the trial unfolds. The first question is what's going to happen. So is he going to plead guilty? Is he going to defend himself? It's always exciting for lawyers. Who does he hire to defend himself? And then the next question will be if, and it's jumping the gun a little bit, but if he, if he does defend himself, meaning uh, plead not guilty and go to trial, then we're, we're always looking at how this stuff plays out. And so I've gotten a couple of questions recently. So let me, let me just, just give one overview in terms of what I'm worried about. And what I'm worried about is what Leah discussed at the top of the episode, which is some sort of the gray mail, the access intelligence to evidence, that sort of, you know, how, how you prosecute this with secret, how our courts hold up, that sort of stuff. So I would say two things. On, on the one hand, we have seen our courts. I think it's, I don't think anyone who's involved in this doesn't think that we need some reform in terms of improving how we do intelligence to evidence. Uh, and we have the seen some- the theme of the podcast. We can, we can all, we have a drinking That's right. I'm sure you're aware. He's <laughs> the new sponsor and member of the podcast now that C-59 has passed, isn't it's it? It's true. It's, 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 entirely possible yeah so so on the one hand we are worried about that sort of stuff on the other hand if you look at our terrorist prosecutions for example our conviction rate is very good and exactly what you'd expect elsewhere and we haven't seen the cases fall apart so it's it's you know on the one hand you want to make clear that this is an imperfect system and it needs improvement and we're as lawyers we're going to be worried about how it functions the other side of that is let's not overplay that either because we have been successful in a number of cases if success being coming to a conclusion of the trial rather than it falling apart on on grounds uh, early on and particularly in our more high profile cases like the terrorism uh, ones for example we we have been successful so this is not going to be a make or break but it is something that i'm going to be following Okay, we haven't failed yet, point one, right. Um, uh, Jess, do you wanna come in? Yeah, so I think you know what I'm looking for over the next little while is a bit different than I think what Mike and Leah are. I'm really looking at what the government's gonna do because you know, the, legal, you know, the legal stuff will happen on its own time in its own way, but the government can do some things now. And I think a lot of it has to do with transparency and reassuring um, you know, our allies that we're taking steps to address this, but also that, and that part of that reassurance needs to happen within the security and intelligence community as well. Like that is one of those key things that absolutely has to be done in a transparent way. Obviously not exposing operational details about what steps exactly are being taken to make sure that this kind of thing never happens again, but just broad strokes that it's happening. And frankly, I think Canadians are owed that as well. Yeah, I mean, that's I just to to add, I think that's probably where, where my issue is. I mean, a lot of the journalists are talking about an immediate publication ban and just trying to close the doors on this as quickly as possible. And, you know, Justin, you and I have talked about this before. The fact is, you know, even in the 2014 terror attacks, you know, we never had really any kind of transparent analysis over what went wrong, what could have been done better, 
all those kinds of things. And, and that's a problem because sunlight is the best disinfectant. And mm -hmm. yeah, we're dealing with sensitive information, but I think Canadians are owed some kind of transparency when you do have a case as serious as this. So that'll be my point. So Leah, I'm going to let you um, end with, with your thoughts. Uh, so the two questions I really am so dying to see are, a, the thing that Jessica raised earlier, what was his motivation? Like, is this, you know, is it something sort of like gambling and addiction or is it, you know, disenfranchisement? Like this, the, the motivation piece is the stuff that movies are, are based around. So this is the intriguing aspect of this. If you're going to take a kind of entertainment value out of this, not to diminish it. But, um, and the other thing that I'm also interested in is if the reporting from Mercedes Stevenson is accurate, what the international dimension of this is in terms of the investigation itself and whether there are other people involved, whether this was a cross-border sting operation. Again, um, perhaps I'm taking this too lightly, but I'm looking for, you know, you know how did this all unfold? Um, and some of that, um, you know, is the type of thing that will get revealed um, down the road. But um, if there's anybody else involved from other countries, that's the thing I'm uh, really interested in. Yeah, and I think the motivation piece, you know, I've said this before, is so fundamentally important, but also from understanding where vulnerabilities lie. So if you understand someone's motivation for doing this kind of thing, you can devise measures to hopefully catch it in the future. So if it's about extortion or compromise, there's steps around that. If it's a financial motivation, there's steps in terms of detecting that as well. And this is a really crucial piece of the puzzle in terms of enhancing the RCMP, but also the entire security and intelligence apparatus in Canada's ability to detect these kinds of things and not let them linger for four years. Well, this is a hell of a way to start off the third season of Intrepid Podcast. Guys, I can't thank you enough. Leah, Jess, Mike, you have donated to me your, your Sunday, and I really appreciate that. So thanks for helping to explain these issues, and I'm sure we'll all be gathering again very soon uh, to, to talk about this. Or if we don't hear anything, we can just maybe complain about how we haven't heard anything uh, going on. Uh, I'm either way, complaining about you. that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So either way, thanks, guys, and uh, we'll chat soon. Thanks, Steph.